Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Lord God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for our study of Exodus. Give us insight into what you were doing in their lives, what you did in the life of Christ, and what you are doing in our lives, and how we can tie those together. Give us great understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the Israelites have not been out of Egypt very long, uh, but, and they've been struggling a little bit ever since they came out and they were miraculously saved from Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea, right? I mean, it was all singing and dancing and rejoicing when it first happens. But then hunger and thirst and fear and the reality of the wilderness set in. And it's nothing but wine, wine, wine. But Israel's problems have been internal. And today's passage brings in the new elements of other tribes, other nations that were there, and they attack. And God is ready to teach his people that he not only meets all of their needs, but that he fights for them. And he delivers them from all of their enemies. Again, he's teaching it because you'd think that lesson was pretty clear with the whole destroying the Egyptian army. But there's a real difference between how God defeated the Egyptians and how he defeats the Amalekites. And that is that the Israelites themselves are called to action. Let's look again at verses 8 through 10. Israel's called to action. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Okay, so if you're a student of the Old Testament, you've read it, you know that they've got all kinds of 
enemies out there. And we, we usually kind of lump them all together. In fact, the Bible often does that. And so it's a little hard to distinguish between the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, all the ites. And you may remember that Goliath, Philistine, but you may not remember much about the other tribes. Well, the Amalekites and the Israelites are like distant cousins, descended from two twin brothers. One brother who inherited everything, and one brother who was on the outs with his parents and with God. Remember in Genesis, Jacob and Esau, God chooses the younger, Jacob, despite the fact that he's a sneaky, scheming cheater. Right? Jacob ends up having 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? Esau, however, marries several Canaanite and has a grandson named Amalek. Many of Esau's descendants are also Edomites, but, who are Israel's enemies also, but the Amalekites are a thorn in Israel's side for a long time. They lived partly by attacking groups and plundering their wealth. And not only do they attack Israel here near the beginning of their wilderness wandering, but according to Numbers 14, they attack again a year later. And they're still around after Israel gets into the promised land. In fact, they're even around hundreds of years later when Saul is king. And he's ordered to completely destroy the Amalekites. But he doesn't. And in 1 Samuel 15, the prophet Samuel comes and rebukes Saul for his lack of obedience and kills the king of the Amalekites himself. I don't know if any of you have seen, the. there's a show, or there was, on Tuesday nights, ABC, it's called Of Kings and Prophets, that is about Saul, David, Samuel. I actually think it's been canceled after two episodes, <laughs> but I saw the first two, and I think it was canceled because it's too violent and speculative and unbiblical, they're just making up all these different storylines and competing with the other violent shows. I think it's just too much for Christians, and it's maybe too biblical for unbelievers. So pick an audience. But while a lot of the show is fabricated, the pilot episode features that incident from 1 Samuel 15, where Samuel kills the Amalekite king because Saul did not. I was just reminded of that a couple weeks ago, reading it watching that. So, but back to our attack here. Uh, Moses reflects back on this incident later. Deuteronomy 25, 17 and 18. He says, remember what Amalek did to you on the, on the way as you came out of Egypt, right? Referring to this incident. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. It wasn't just that they attacked, but that they targeted the weary, the weak ones in the back. One commentary called the assault a mean, dastardly, insidious surprise on the rear and an impious defiance of God. I think that captures it. Now remember, 
when Israel was brought to the edge of the Red Sea and the Egyptians were bearing down on them. Do you remember what Moses told the people to do? We just preached on it a couple weeks ago. Nothing. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Just watch. Well, that's not Moses' instructions this time. Verse 9, go out and fight with Amalek. This is actually the first time we meet Joshua in the Bible. And of course, he's going to be a huge figure by the end of Moses' life. But you wonder if Joshua's thinking, uh, right, I'm, I'm taking a bunch of former slaves, completely untrained, unprepared for battle, and you going to be again up there standing up on the top of the hill and I'm down there with the fighters. Sounds good. But Israel's going to fight. But if there's anything that this passage teaches, it's the necessity of God's help. Verses 11 through 13. Let's read that again. The necessity of God's help seen. Whenever Moses held up his hand... Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. What's Moses doing here? He's interceding for the people. He's fighting this battle in the way that the Lord wants him to, using spiritual weapons. Now, Moses, the author, doesn't tell the reader that God promised that whole hands-up victory, hands-down defeat, um, but it's pretty clearly the case. And as we've said before, I mean, Moses is holding the staff. And it's not a magic staff, right? It doesn't work to perform miracles of its own. And there's nothing about Moses that gives the staff power. It is solely the power of God working through the staff and through Moses' obedience in holding his hand. Here, the staff is the symbol of God's presence and power. And Moses holds it up to heaven, and God honors this sign that they were depending on his power to defend his people and win this battle against a superior military foe. Moses is an old man, though, right? He is an imperfect mediator. So Aaron, his brother, and her, who's probably his brother-in-law, probably Miriam's husband, they have to get him seated. And they both, they each hold up one of his hands. And in that way, the battle is won. So let's pause and reflect on our, probably our first application here. Where are you when your brother is struggling? Are you there to hold him up? And I, I by brother, I think we can make that as broad as Jesus used the word neighbor 
right? Anyone you know who is in need, you can be an Aaron, a her too, supporting them when they're weak. Now there's a big picture of how our lives relate to the situation of the Israelites. You see, just like Israel, we have been saved from our slavery and we are on our way to the promised land. But before we get there, we are tested and tried and attacked. And we have to live our lives in the context of a community that is loved by God, but not yet to our final destination. Ephesians 6.12 tells us that for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's a different battle we face. We will face the attacks of the enemy. We will face temptations. We will have hardships and trials. And we have two options if we're not going to give up. Pray about it or do something about it. And yet, I think this passage clearly teaches that that's not an either or proposition. Here's what I mean by that. We can't do just one. We cannot simply try to win in our own power. And we cannot simply sit in our rooms praying. We must do both. For God is the true strength we call upon in our trials. But God is to walk in the good works that He has prepared for us. He uses human means to accomplish His will. Now the fancy theological way of saying this is sanctification is a cooperative endeavor where we both work hard and rely on God's strength and His work. Now do you remember the list of the armor of God that we're to take up according to Ephesians 6? There's the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. We are clearly to be dressed and ready to act and interact with the seat. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. There is a great balance of relying on God to act and answer our prayers at the same time that we act and accomplish things He's called us to. Do you need a new job? Do you need to kick an unhealthy habit or addiction? Get help. Follow the steps. Get a support system, accountability in your life, and pray hard. God, you need a better marriage. Hit your knees in prayer, and then 
sign up for the family life marriage conference and go to counseling cut cable do whatever you need to do to give your marriage a fight listen if you don't feel like you're great at this probably will <laughs> most of the time I run around doing the things that I think I need to do and things that I think will fix and solve and accomplish God's work and then I'm stopped pastor after all but then there's an evangelistic opportunity anyone's sitting next to somebody in a coffee shop or on a plane or something and, and then I'm all prayer God save this person bring him to faith in Christ just don't make me have to talk to him God calls us to both think about places in your life where you're doing one or the other. And recognize that. So, Israel depended on God. And they did their part. And when they won, the last three verses show us how they were celebrating the Lord's victory. Verses 14 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Well, this triumph of Israel over its first military foe receives not only a write-up and a clear allusion, we think, to Moses being the author of the first five books of the Bible, but also he builds an altar and he names it, The Lord is My Banner. Philip Ryken explains, A banner is a military standard, a piece of cloth bearing an army insignia and raised on a pole. Soldiers always look to their banner. It establishes their identity. It helps them know who they are. On the battlefield, it also helps them keep their bearings and gives them courage and hope. As long as their banner is still flying, they know that the battle is not lost. That's what Moses' staff has been, but only as the physical representation of the invisible God. Last week's text, if you just back up to verse 7, the Israelites were asking, is the Lord among us or not? The Lord is my banner, is the answer. He is there. Now the New Testament says that there is another physical representation of the invisible God. A man who was held up in the air as God's answer to the attack on his people by the great enemy. He is the banner that proclaims that God saves. In fact, his very name means God saves. His name, the Greek equivalent, through name Joshua, and that is Jesus. He was lifted up on a cross to die for our sins. And it is by looking to the crucified and risen Christ that we live. Jesus had to hang there 
and die for the victory to be ours. Whenever we come under attack, we should look to Christ and his cross for courage and strength for the fight. And Jesus not only interceded on the cross for us, but the scriptures tell us that he continues to intercede on our behalf. Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What a beautiful picture. Now, as we reflect on this passage, we need to remember a prophecy back in Genesis 3.15. As God is issuing punishments after the very first sin of Adam and Eve, part of what he says is a curse to the serpent. And at the same time, it both frames the major spiritual conflict of history and gives the first indication of what the gospel and the work of Christ will look like. You remember what that said? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, we're not talking about humans and snakes being pitted against each other, right? We're talking about the people of God being at odds with the forces of Satan throughout history. And in the Old Testament, it's very clear that Israel is God's people in conflict with the descendants of the serpent who are its pagan neighbors. So this whole episode with the Amalekites is somewhat the beginning of a long chapter in this struggle. But as I said, this is also the first gospel promise that a descendant of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And I think that's the ultimate way we point to Easter Sunday and the resurrection of Christ. Satan thought he had won when Jesus was crucified on the cross and killed. But the power of God to raise his son from the dead, his perfect, sinless son, who died as a substitute for the sins of God's people, ultimately triumphed over the power of Satan. Colossians 2, 13-15 explains it very well. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What looked like defeat, Jesus hanging on the cross, his life slipping away was actually God's battle plan. His way of defeating the forces of darkness. At the same time that our forgiveness 
and our salvation, we're secured. And Paul tells us that we who believe in Jesus were crucified with him, we're buried with him, and that we were raised to new life with him. It's the most natural thing in the world to fear death, the great unknown. And the scriptures tell us that if you die and your sins count against you, you should fear death because you will be separated from God for eternity. But when you trust in Christ for his salvation, for his saving work on your behalf, there's no reason to fear. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Defeated, destroyed. The cross and the empty tomb tell us that we have nothing to fear. I've got one more scripture. It didn't make it into your outline. I'm sorry, but it's a great summary. If you, if you want to pull your Bibles out to 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read 20, verses 22 through 27. Because it points us ahead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all the enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Beloved, there is still a victory to be won when all of Christ's enemies will ultimately be dealt with. But it's finished. Victory has been achieved, just not fully realized. But we declare our victory when we say, He is risen. He is risen. Lord God, thank you for this text. Thank you that no matter where we are in the scriptures, they point to the cross. They point to the resurrection. Christ is throughout all of Scripture. And so as we study how you dealt with your people who were enslaved and you brought through to freedom, we see a picture of how you bring us from the slavery of our sin you bring us into victorious life, and yet we are still attacked. We still struggle. The enemy wants to see us defeated. Our Christian life is not easy, it is not always happy and joyful. We have trials. We have great sadness in our lives. And yet, you equip us. 
You give us the tools and you fight on our behalf. Lord God, may we embrace that. That you are our strength. That we call upon you in our time of need at all times. And yet we walk in the good works you've prepared in advance for us. Thank you that Jesus was victorious. That he submitted himself to what seemed like the end. To what seemed like defeat. And yet, because he was the perfect, sinless Lamb of God. Though he took our sins on him, you raised him from the dead defeated death and we are raised with him it is the great promise that death cannot defeat us and we rejoice Jesus name amen receive the benediction from Hebrews chapter 13 now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead Our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.